Uh, welcome to Taproot. I'm Tracy, and I'm going to be reading our scripture this morning. Um, when I finish reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and as a church, we prayerfully respond. Speak, Lord, your servants here. Matthew 19, verses 16 through 30. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you enter, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He, he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false, false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated and I'll pray. Father, um, these are hard words. As Americans, um, on a global scale, most of us would be counted as rich. Um, so would you uh, speak to our hearts, help us see the areas where we have yet to follow you or could follow you more wholly, and help us value your eternal treasures and kingdom and your son Jesus. Amen. How are we, family? Good, good. Happy week of Thanksgiving. Everyone excited? Yes. Kind of. <laughs> Looks debatable for some. 
Uh, all right. Well, if you're a guest uh, this morning, welcome. My name is Mike, one of the pastors here in Tapper Church. Glad to have you gather with us. Um, yeah, we're continuing to work our way here through the Gospel of Matthew, and we are uh, finally moving on from the first few verses that we were hanging out in for a good long time. Um, and I have to be—I have to be honest. I this Tracy prayed it. And it's true, this text is really hard. So I just, I'll let you all know where I am here this morning. Um, I had, for several weeks, I had an idea in mind as far as what this text was saying. And then all week, I was trying to wrestle with it, and it's just not what the text was saying. <laughs> and so uh, this morning, I find myself with a whole bunch of thoughts in the air. It's one of those mornings where I'm trying to see if I can bring them down, and I'm having a really hard time. Uh, so I'm going to do my best to, to try to navigate this text uh, with us here this morning. My, my initial thought was that it was primarily about money. Right? Like I think at, at first glance, that's what we would assume. And also, it's interesting, um, you know, some commentators, Bruner, Frederick Dale Bruner is one of them, he kind of alludes to how you kind of have this kind of domestic setting in which Jesus is speaking into right now. So we, we talked about marriage and, and family and sex, and we talked about children. And then, you know, logically, what's going to follow from that is, is finances. And it would seem like at the heart of this passage is this issue of, of money, right? And kind of this challenge that Jesus gives to this rich person to go and sell all of his possessions and give it to the poor and then go and, and follow Jesus and and so there's just kind of this like logical sequence, but at the, at the core of this text is something much, much, much deeper. Um, and it's, it is, it's this concept of entering life. What, is it, what does it look like to enter into and to actually have eternal life the way that Jesus describes it, the way that the entirety of, of Scripture describes it? And so that's, that's kind of the, the framework that I want us to work with this morning. We'll see how it comes out. Um, I might have points, I might not. I have nothing on the screen, just so you all know. Like, that's, that's where we're at, okay? But I do, I do want to start with this question. Um, what is it that makes you come alive? Like, like, what gets you going, getting out of bed in the morning? Coffee? Coffee? <laughs> uh, what is it that makes you come alive? That just kind of, what is it that just kind of sets your life on fire? Or what is it that you would say makes your life good? What makes your life good? Uh, for some of us, it might be beholding the fullness of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Right? As good Christians this morning, right? we know how to give the Sunday school answer. Jesus. Jesus is what makes me come alive. And that, that's true. I, and I think I want that to be true. Uh, and I, I know that all of you here gathering together this morning, like you're here because you, you want that to be true. Uh, and I think somewhere in the reality of your life, you would say that that is true. Like God is what makes you come to life. It's what it ought to be. But honestly, uh, if, right, if we're to be honest, it's often something else. If if we're honest, there, there are numerous other things that get us going, that, that, that motivate us, that bring us excitement and joy more than the fullness of, of God and who he is. Could be a sport. I've heard that there's this thing called the World Cup. Not sure what it is. 
started today or something like that. Could be a sport. Um, could be a relationship. Could be uh, our marriages. Could be not being married. Uh, it could be a desire to, to get married or, or, or just some type of relational status in some way, shape, or form that just gets you going. Could be your family. That's an interesting thing to, to think through during the holidays, right? How, how our families take center stage. Could be your job or your career. Uh, it could just simply be the things that you possess. Right? Now, the challenge with all of these things, I think, is this, is that none of them are bad in and of themselves. Right? To, to, to be in a relationship, to be in marriage, whatever your relationship is, it's not bad in and of itself. To, to love your family, like deeply and, and dearly, uh, is not a bad thing. To, to, to love your job or your career, to desire a job or career, whatever that is, it's not a bad thing. To have possessions is not a bad thing. None of these things are bad things. The problem is this, is that these things are not what constitutes life the way the scripture defines it. In other words, all too often what we do is we take these things and we take these things that are good things and we turn them into ultimate things. And, and this is what idolatry is. And what we understand from the story of scripture is that idolatry uh, is the path to death and not life. Tim Keller puts it like this. He has a really good book uh, that he wrote a while ago. It's called Counterfeit Gods. It's a little, little book. I would recommend you read it. Um, and he says this. He says, quote, what is an idol? He says, it is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Now go ahead and just, let's just take that definition for a moment of what an idol is, of what idolatry is, and then just apply that to yourself. Right? What, what is it in your life that you find to be more important than God? What is it that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God? And what is it uh, that you are seeking to give you what only God can give you? That thing is, by definition, an idol, and, and by definition, according to, again, the entire story of Scripture and according to the Gospel of Matthew and according to the way of Jesus, whatever that thing is, is actually a path to, to death. It has to be put in its proper place. And I think this is what this text is actually getting at. I think what this text is doing is, is more than... More than asking us questions about our possessions and more than asking us questions about how we handle personal finances, the text is asking us questions about the heart. And, and, and really, I, I think we could pick this theme out of the entirety of Matthew chapter 19 in regards to, to marriage and a certain picture that we might have about marriage or singleness, uh, children and a particular picture that we might paint about children and parenting. And then, and then now just possessions in general, over and over and over again, the question that's being asked in this, uh, though maybe not always explicitly, is what is it that's capturing our heart? Right? What's bringing us most joy and, and satisfaction? Right? 
And so this morning's text is really, it's a challenge to the human heart because as John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory, an idol factory. That is, we are always, whether we're doing our best or whether it's unknowing, we are always creating idols and Jesus is willing to confront that factory head on. And so in this sermon, what we see is this, is Jesus challenges our understanding of what is ultimately good and satisfying, and he invites humans to replace that which is temporarily good with he who is ultimately good. Say it one more time. Jesus challenges our understanding of what is ultimately good and satisfying, and he invites humans, humanity, to replace that which is temporarily good with he who is ultimately good. Um. So I think, I think I'm going to try to break the text up into two parts, because uh, it naturally breaks itself up into two parts. Um, so the first part is, is seeing this, the false good life exposed. It's kind of a funny thing to say, the false good life exposed. And then after that, we'll see the true good life received. And so let's, let's see how we can uh, work through this. The false good life exposed. So let's, uh, first things first, we need to set the scene again. So let's just read Matthew uh, 19, verses 16 through 22. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions." So in setting the scene, remember, Jesus has just challenged once again his disciples' perspective on greatness. And this is a theme that just continues to carry itself throughout this portion of the Gospel of Matthew. Because back in, in Matthew 18, starting there in the verse, you know, like four verses, the disciples are like, hey, who's, who's the greatest? And Jesus does what? He brings a child into their midst. And then last week, again, we had the same experience where Jesus has a child or, or children are brought to Jesus. The disciples try to stop the children from coming. And Jesus says, no, he rebukes his disciples and sets children up again as an example, right? And he teaches us that it's those such as children who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. So again, so just work with me. What, is, what does it mean then to be like a child in this case? What's Jesus saying? Yeah, dependence, humility. What, what does it mean? Like Trust, what do children possess? Nothing. Right? And so this is, this is supposed to carry us throughout this entirety of the text, is this reality that children possess nothing, and it's those such as children who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scene transitions from that, and it, it changes, and what we have is Jesus and his disciples are moving along. Uh, ultimately, Jesus and his disciples are moving towards Jerusalem, we're getting ready to enter into the uh, Passion Week uh, is what's happening here. They're moving along, and the exact opposite person of a child comes along. The rich, the rich young man, which is interesting. A lot of us, I think, we're familiar with this person as the rich young ruler. Um, and what's interesting is not a single one of uh, the gospel texts actually name him as a rich young ruler. <laughs> 
That title uh, comes from a, a conglomeration of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, which carries this story in each of them. And so each, each of those writers actually has a different way of referencing this particular person. Anyways, total side note, this person is the exact opposite of a child. Right? And, and I think it's interesting, this, this rich ruler, this rich young ruler, I think he represents an ideal human of sorts. Like if we were to think of the ideal human being, I think at least in our context, I think it would be really easy for us to look at this rich young ruler and say, this guy has it all together. He's, he's moral, right? Like he says he's keeping the commands. So he's, he's like, he's moral, ethical, God loving, God-fearing person, it seems. Uh, he's rich, right? He's got his financial ducks in a row. He has a lot of possessions. Uh, so uh, he's financially set. Outwardly, he appears great. He's obviously a hard worker. My guess is he doesn't really bother with the Sabbath too much because he's got to make all of this money. At the end of the day, this seems to be a guy that you'd want your daughter to marry, He's got it all together. And not only that, but he's someone that God should be proud of, is he not? Like, why would not God be proud of such a person who's, who's figured out life so exquisitely? And, and of course, he's not to be rejected like a child. Notice, notice the distinct difference in the way that the disciples respond to this person compared to the way they responded to a child. Right? There's no way that they're going to reject this person and prevent this person from coming to Jesus. But here's the thing. That which appears good isn't always good. Right? That which appears good and all put together nice and neatly on the outside, isn't always all that good. And Jesus knows this. What I think is interesting about this is I think the man knows it too, though apparently not deeply enough. And so what Jesus does in his words and his questions is he just sort of gently draws this man out and exposes his true heart, which is really what each of us needs to have happen on a regular basis. So what is, what is this man's problem, and how does Jesus draw out this problem? Okay. Uh, what, is, what is it that this man is not understanding, is, is the question here, okay? Uh, first, he doesn't comprehend who Jesus is. He doesn't comprehend who Jesus is. Notice, what does he call Jesus? You don't need to whisper. <laughs> Teacher, yes. He calls him teacher, which if, if, if we remember throughout like the whole of the gospel of Matthew, right? Anytime someone calls Jesus teacher, it's a negative, right? And he, because Matthew doesn't want us to just understand Jesus as teacher. Who does, who does Matthew want us to understand Jesus to be? Lord, Lord. Right? He's, he is the Lord, he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he has brought a kingdom, right? and he is, he is the king. 
And so anytime someone refers to Jesus as teacher, it's an automatic, okay, this person's not understanding fully who Jesus is, right? Rightly knowing and understanding Jesus is indicated by knowing him as Lord and living accordingly. So that's, that's the first problem. That's, that's a relatively seemingly minor problem in the grand scheme of this text, and Jesus is able to quickly move on from it. But the second, the second thing that this man isn't understanding is this. He doesn't understand what, or rather, who is truly good. Now, this this is interesting. This is a perplexing part of this text. Notice verse 17. Uh, So the the man asks, teacher, or sorry, this is verse 16. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Let's just say, this is a good question to ask. This is a good question to ask. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Another side note, this is the only passage in the whole gospel of Matthew where the phrase eternal life is mentioned. Uh, what's also interesting is that uh, Jesus, or the, the, the rich young man asks Jesus about eternal life. Jesus transitions that into an understanding of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Uh, the disciples refer to it as salvation. But it's the only place in the gospel of Matthew where all of these three phrases are interacting with each other. Anyways, he's asking a good question. What deed must I do to have eternal life? It's just the wrong approach, right? And so verse 17, Jesus says to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Anyone confused by that? Good, so am I. Um, What is it that Jesus is doing? Uh, Jesus isn't isn't saying that he himself isn't good. Uh, But rather what Jesus is doing is he's just, he's doing a couple things. First off, in his humanity, we need to understand that part of Jesus's role was to always perfectly point to the Father. And and so Jesus exemplifies always a life that's lived um, fully aware of the presence of the Father and fully in submission to the Father as a human. And so in in Jesus' life, he is not attempting to take for himself the goodness that is actually due to his name, which is mind-boggling. Right. Uh, but I, th- I, think, I think Paul kind of backs this up in Philippians 2, right? When he talks about the humility uh, of Jesus in, in the life that he lived, like he didn't consider his, his godness, his divinity as something to be uh, used for his own power and purposes. And so continually in his life and in his ministry, he's, he's pointing perfectly to God, So Jesus fully embraced his life in perfect surrender to the Father and thus perfectly makes the Father known, right? And and so he's doing this here in in absolute humility. And what he's also doing this is he's addressing the fact that the rich man thinks that he can do enough to be good enough on his own apart from God. And so he's he's exposing in this rich person that his, his, his question is a good question, but his approach and his understanding of who he is is off. Because the, the man approaches Jesus assuming that there's something that he can do to make God proud. That, that he can do enough to earn God's favor. So we'll just lay it on thick here from the beginning. You can't do enough to earn God's favor. We, we have no ability in ourselves to do anything to grasp onto the goodness that is required to stand in God's presence. 
And, 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 and it's, an, it's an interesting thing that this person does because notice his language, his language, teacher, what good deed must I do to have? It's, it's, it's aggressive. It's this language of like, how, what, what, what good can I do to, like, to grasp, to get, to take a hold of this thing? Because that's the way that he's lived his entire life. And I, and I mean, if we're honest, that's the way that we often live our lives as well. Right? What, what good things, what do we need to do in order to get, to take hold of, and to, to maintain in our own strength eternal life? Right? And, and, even, and even for us as followers of Jesus who know <laughs> that we don't have any good that we can do in and of ourselves, we still revert back to this on a regular basis. Like on, like on a daily basis, I think our struggle is this, is we wake up thinking, not that God is good, but that we have to do something to prove our goodness to him. Right? And so he's, he's not comprehending the true goodness of God, and yet this is what Jesus wants him, he wants him to see. Because what Jesus understands and what this rich man understand, or does not understand is that only God is ultimately good and all true goodness is the overflow of God. Right? I, I, think that, I think that reality exists on like a, a general um, common grace perspective. Right? That, the, that, that there's common grace surrounding us all over in this world. That does, you don't have to be a Christian to do good. There's good that exists around us, even for those who aren't followers of Jesus. But there's a a different experience of good that I think that we have as disciples of Jesus. And that's what Jesus is wanting to get this man to understand. So he's not comprehending who Jesus is. He's not understanding who God is. And then third, he doesn't understand the meaninglessness of his possessions. He doesn't understand the meaninglessness of his possessions. So let's move on here. Verse 18 Actually, verse 17 again. He said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now that's interesting, right? Uh, We had in our our preaching and theology cohort this past week, as we were talking through this text, someone said, why why is this the question that Jesus asks? Or, or why is this what Jesus, sorry, he doesn't ask a question. Why is this what Jesus says? What would we expect to find here? Believe, just love God, just have more faith and you'll enter eternal life. But no, Jesus says, keep the commandments. I think we'll come back to that in a minute. If we don't, remind me, okay? He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here's here's the setup. Uh, And and when I say setup, I don't mean that in a negative negative sense. Jesus isn't trying to like set this man up for for failure in a negative sense. He is, he's trying to draw him out, okay? Um, Jesus references the commandments, and notice he references the back half of the law. And there's a couple things going on here. First off, Jesus understands the law not in 10 separate parts, but as one complete whole. So in in the phrase when it says, when he says, which ones, and Jesus said, uh, we need to understand it as Jesus saying the one that says. It's kind of the singular idea 
that Jesus is getting across. He's, he's capturing the whole of the law here. Okay? And so he says, the one that says, you shall not murder, commit adultery, so on and so forth. So he, he references specifically, of course, the back half, what we know as the back half of the commandments. He, he references specifically six, seven, eight, nine, then five. And then he sums it up by uh, quoting, I think it's Leviticus 19, eight or something like that, uh, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I'm just, I'm wondering how many of you would respond the way that the rich man responds, right? Okay, like, his response is amazing. Check, I got it. What else am I still lacking? And then this is where Jesus really gets to the heart, right? If if you would be perfect, uh, go. I'll pause there so I don't forget. The word perfect there, it's the same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. So remember way back to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The idea is not a complete moral perfection. It's the idea of maturity or completeness. So Jesus isn't, he's not not necessarily calling this man to perfection. He's he's giving a a picture of, of maturity and completeness. This ought to be the desire of our hearts as disciples is, is a, a maturity and a completeness as followers of Jesus. So he, so he says, if you would be mature, if you would be complete, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor <clears throat> and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now watch his response. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. All right, so at the heart of what Jesus does here is he just shows this man that he's, he's missing the big picture. Right? It's interesting. I actually think we could all answer pretty positively in regards, like for the most part, if we were to just look at these things on the surface, like you shall not murder. Anyone? Okay, good. Check. <laughs> uh, you shall not commit adultery. That's you know, that might be a little more challenging, but for the most part, I think we're doing pretty good there. You shall not steal. You know, (laughs) so-so. You shall not bear false witness or lie. Yeah, maybe we can't do that good. Anyways, (laughs) what's interesting about this, though, is this. These These are laws that outwardly are easy to put a show on for or to put a show on with, right? Uh, I I guess the assumption in some way, shape, or form is that you can keep, you know, murders, like, obvious. If you've murdered someone, I mean, everyone's going to know about that. Adultery becomes more secretive, easy to keep that hidden. Lying, also easy to keep that hidden. The man has done everything he can to keep up outward appearances. No one can look at this rich man's life and say, you are, whatever, a sinner, He's doing a good job, right? Like he, he appears to be morally upright and put together, right? He's, he's exemplary in the life of the church, right? If people are like, who do you want to be like uh, in, in the church? They're like, we want to be like the rich young man. Look at, I mean, he's keeping the law. He's rich. What else do we want? Morals and money. So outwardly, he appears to be great, right? But he's unwilling to part with his true God, right? And thus, 
what Jesus does is he exposes this reality that he doesn't love God or his neighbor. And so what's the, what's the result then? Well, he's, he's actually broken the whole of the law. Right? It's, it's really interesting that, that Jesus doesn't, he doesn't mention the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. And I think it's really interesting that he doesn't mention commands one through four. But in not doing that, he's doing that right here. Like he's, he's created an object lesson out of this person's life and exposes the fact that he's not loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he's coveting on the other end of the spectrum. And thus he's negated the entire thing and broken the entire thing. And thus is far more distant from God than he could ever imagine. Right? And exposes the true depth of his need. Now, what's interesting about this is, is it's conflated with his possessions. Now, here, here's, here's where this is challenging, interesting, I don't know. The real danger, I think, that's being addressed here is, is to take religion and possessions and kind of put them together and say that if you have one, you must be doing really good at the other. Okay? In other words, uh, it was common in, in Jesus's day for uh, for those who were financially well-to-do to equate that to some performance before God. is a prosperity gospel. Right? And it's the same thing that we often do ourselves. We conflate religion with our possessions. And here's how it works out. We think that if things are going good in our lives, then God must be pleased with what we're doing and how we're living. We must be praying enough. We must be reading enough. We must be going to church enough. We must be giving enough. We must be whatever, fill in your blank. What is it that you think that you need to do enough to make God happy? And then there's the other end of the spectrum, right? That if we are not, or or, uh, let's just say we're in a rough patch, Life is really hard. Possessions are disappearing. Relationships are dwindling. It's just really hard. Well, then we must be doing something wrong. We're not praying enough. We're not reading enough. We're not going to church enough. We're not giving enough. And if only we would just up the ante give more, do more, be more faithful, then God would love us more and it would all be fixed. Is that not miserable? Right? Is that not miserable? Both ends of that spectrum are a prosperity teaching of some sort. Right? And both of those are wrong. And they culminate, this whole thing culminates in the truth that religion and possessions will never be enough to satisfy God or ourselves. Okay. Right. Like, so hold on to this reality. Okay. No amount of our religious do-goodism will be enough to satisfy God. And no amount of possessions will be enough to satisfy you. I hope you found that to be true. 
We, we so easily live under this lie uh, that if we, could just, if we could just get a little bit more money, everything would just be easier. Yeah, it's laughable. It just never works. If we could just have a few more things, whatever it is, it will never be enough to satisfy. And this is, it's interesting here that I think the man knows it. Even though he considers his life to be mostly good, he knows that there's something that's still lacking, right? That's his response to Jesus. He says, I've kept all of these. What do I still lack? I don't think that's a question of arrogance. I think that's a question of like, there's still something that's not satisfying me. Right? See, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the way, that's the taskmaster of religion, you, could, you can do really good, and it will never be enough. You will always need to be more moral, more ethical, more right. right? So there has to be somewhere else to look. Right? And so Jesus wants to move us away from this false picture of good and wants to move us into a true picture of good. So the false, what did we call that? The false good life exposed. Now, what does it look like to have the true good life or the true good life received? Okay. Well, we'll just start again with this reality that it's an impossibility to have eternal life on our own. Right. Eternal life, um, let's see. Understand this first and foremost. Eternal life is not something in the future solely. Jesus came that we would have abundant or eternal life and that we would have it when? Now. Yeah. So it's not just a future reality that Jesus has you know, awaiting us if we do good enough, so on and so forth. It's a, it is a present reality that we as his followers are able to experience, but we don't experience it in and through our own goodness. Uh, Jesus is not seeking to emphasize what we are to do. He is emphasizing who we are to be. Jesus, he wants to reorient the question that we ask so that we, so that we wake up in the morning not asking, all right, Lord, what good deed must I do today to have a full life? He wants us to ask the question, who am I today? Right? Who am I? Who are you? Right? And so Jesus seeks to, to create this new identity in us. Right? And... Um, and to, the, and to thus receive a good life. All right, let's see how we can work this out. Uh, again, I want to draw our attention back to the commandments and, and the law question. Right? It's interesting. Jesus says to the man to keep the commandments, right? Why does he do that? Here's, here's what's interesting. The law could be kept, How are we doing? So I, th I think most of us are scared of that. We're like, wait a minute. Um, the, the, scripture doesn't say necessarily specifically that the law couldn't be kept. It actually, it actually says the opposite. So if you want to see, I know you want proof. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 30. 
In, in our ESV Bibles, starting in verse 11, it, it, the, the heading there is the choice of life and death, which I think is really important in light of the whole of the Gospel of Matthew, because remember, the Gospel of Matthew is repeatedly showing us these two ways of life or death, right? Two paths. And so listen to what the author of, of Deuteronomy says. For this commandment, in verse 11, that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. What? What is he saying? It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods, idolatry, and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish." You shall not live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. Listen to what he says. He says there's, there's a choice that's put before us. Either, either we can define what is good or we can submit to what God says is good. Now remember, this is the picture of the whole story of the Bible. If we go back to Genesis 3, where sin enters into human history, what, what happens? Humans define what is good for themselves rather than trusting God and submitting to him, obeying what he says is good. Right? So again, therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord, your, that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Right? That's a beautiful picture. Right? That, that there is a path of life that is set before us that God says that we can do. Right? Here's the problem. We won't. We won't. Right? So it, it's, it's interesting. I, 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 there's, I feel like there's, there's a real tension here in what Jesus is doing, right? Like Jesus is inviting this man, like, step on the path of life. Keep it. Go for it, buddy. But you won't. Right? You won't. Right? And see, so he exposes this reality to us, right? Now, I want us to remember this, right? It, it, we, I think we tend to try to eradicate the commands. Uh, but we can't for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, Jesus. <laughs> number two, uh, in 1 John, John says that if we love Jesus, what are we gonna do? Well, keep his commands. Right? That's in the New Testament. Right? So they still exist. They still they still hold weight over us. Like we're still supposed to obey God's 
commands. But what we often miss and what we need to so importantly understand is that the keeping of the law always flows out of salvation first. So whether we're we're thinking of the Deuteronomy story or whether we're thinking of Jesus in the Gospels or whether we're thinking of what John tells us in 1 John, what has always come first is the saving work of God. So if we think through the the, the story of, of the Pentateuch, right, Matthew through Deuteronomy, when does the law come? Exodus, but when in Exodus? After he saves them. Right? The beauty of the picture of that story is that they haven't done anything. They, they literally have nothing. They're slaves in the land of Egypt. They have, they have nothing that they possess on their own. They have, they have nothing to give to themselves. They have nothing to give to God. They have no sacrificial system in place. And yet God rescues them. God brings them through the waters and onto dry land. That is salvation and sets them in a new place. And then, then he gives the law. And here's, here's the reality for us is that, again, in Matthew, we see this reality. We are intended to live out good lives. We are intended, like, God wants us to do good. God wants us to do righteousness. God wants us to be mature, complete, obedient followers of Jesus. He wants us to to see the picture of life that he gives us and to say, yes, that's good life. I want that life. I want to follow that life. But the only way that we even stand a chance is by seeing that God is good first. That that the motive for us is that that Jesus has gone before us. And and Jesus did perfectly live out this righteousness. Jesus did perfectly point to the Father. Jesus did perfectly trust the Father. Jesus saw that the Father was good in all that he said, all that he does. And Jesus paid the penalty for our sins in our place. So that what happens now, because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, is that our identity is transformed. And the question that we ask is no longer a question of what good must I do to inherit eternal life. It's that, no, we possess eternal life, and now our question is, who am I? And who are we, church? We're beloved. We're beloved sons and daughters. Right? Like the, the beauty and the scandalous nature of the gospel is that, that God looks upon you, regardless of what your efforts have been, and says that you are loved. Right? That like he, he actually delights in you. He's actually pleased with you. Because he sees Jesus, right? And so we live out of this new reality, and it's absolutely transformative. And this is, this is what Jesus wants to draw us into, right? Um, 
Now, this, this reality of this identity has, has several implications, right? Uh, the, law, the law exposes our inadequacy before the truly good God. Romans 3 tells us that. Uh, but it, uh, an important implication of this is this, is that the, it humbles us, right? Like, this reality is absolutely humbling to us. I love, I love this text. I was reminded of this text from James chapter 2. Um, where James is talking about the sin of partiality. In, in James 2, he's talking about uh, in the context of like a church gathering uh, where, where they would, in that church gathering, they would give the best seats to the rich and the poor would get the worst seats. We don't, I, don't, I don't think we function like that here. Anyways, it's, this, it's what he calls the sin of partiality. Here's what he says in verse eight. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So James 2 has the same understanding as Jesus when it comes to the law. It's one whole. And he does the same thing that Jesus does. He exposes that if you failed in one point, you failed at the whole thing. Okay, so what do we do? For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, listen to this. So, speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Right? There's, this, there's just this interesting reality that is being exposed here. Like what Jesus is doing is he's showing this man that by works of the law, he doesn't have a leg to stand on. Right? That, that we don't get to come in here to our gatherings as if we have some like one-upsman game that we're playing. Right? Rather, the, the reality of who we are in Christ, it, it it lays us flat, it humbles us, it levels the playing field, and a posture of humility and mercy is now what is required and is the overflow. See, if, if we can't show mercy to those who are struggling around us, then we haven't understood the goodness and mercy of God ourselves. And, and this is, again, this is the place that Jesus is wanting to bring this man as he communicates these realities to him about the law. Now, the final thing that I think Jesus does here in this text is he just simply points to the fact that our greatest need is himself, right? that our greatest need is, is indeed Jesus. Right? And so let's do this. Verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, we'll just pause there for a moment. First off, um, the question is often brought up with this text, are we all required to sell all of our possessions in order to be followers of Jesus? How are we doing? I hope not, right? Because, uh, yeah, the answer is no. (laughs) 
No. Um, it's interesting. We have, to, we have to assume that that's the case because in other instances, when Jesus talks about money, he doesn't talk about getting rid of all your possessions. Rather, he talks about stewarding them well. So this isn't, this isn't like a flat, if you want to follow Jesus, you all need to sell everything that you have because otherwise you're not going to be able to follow him. Now, at the same time, um, what Jesus will do is he'll often target specific things in our lives and might require us to give them up. Right? And, and that might look different in different seasons. Uh, I think the reality is that often it does have to do with some sort of physical material possessions. And so here's, here's the question is if Jesus invited you to give up everything that you own, would you? Like, would you? I appreciate the honest looks. Like, oh, that's... Because what Jesus, I mean, he's wanting to direct us and ask us, like, where are we really truly finding hope and abundant life? Is it in your savings account? Is it, is it in the fact that you have, you know, a bank account that has three months worth of finances so that if you lose your job today, you're, you're, no, you're good for a few months? Like, is that your comfort and security and hope? Right. Is it in your retirement plan? Right. Like, it's really interesting. Like, we have all of these dreamy things that we've built up as Americans that Jesus doesn't seem to care too much about in the grand scheme of things. Because at the, at the core, he's drawing us to this reality that those things are fine. Right? Like, be responsible. Be a good steward. But don't set your hope there. Right? Don't set your hope there. Right? And, and even more than that, we have to constantly be just like we talked about last week, like addressing, addressing the issues of our, our heart, we have to constantly be assessing our own heart and like, I think be asking the question like, what am I holding on to? Right? Like, what's giving me more satisfaction, more joy, more gladness than Jesus? Right? And that's really, really hard to do. It's, it's really hard to do because we, we like our comfort. And it's not bad. Please hear me say it's not bad to possess things. It's not bad. It's not even bad to be a good moneymaker. Right? Like some of you are really gifted at making money. You should keep doing that. Right? But steward it well for God's glory and God's kingdom. Don't let it take you over because it will not ultimately satisfy you. Okay? And here, here, here's where Jesus goes with this, right? Um, Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus is not referencing anything specific or literal in the land of Israel. This is just hyperbole. Uh, it's Jesus's way of saying, it's really impossible. Right? Like that, like the, notice, that's the, that's the case because the disciples' next question is like, hmm, how do you fit a camel through a needle? No, their question is like, how then is anything possible? Like, if this is the case, how is it possible for anyone to experience eternal life? And then Jesus' response is, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. 
And so that's, that's it. That's the good news. <laughs> that God is good, and God is the one who does the work to transform our hearts that we may be most satisfied in him. Now, the text is interesting in how it concludes. Peter, Peter starts talking. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Um, I'm undecided as to what Peter is getting at with his question at this point. Uh, I don't, and I don't, I'm not fully convinced that he's in, in the, I, I still don't think Peter's quite understanding this whole kingdom thing. Uh, because, because of the way that the text ends, but many who are first will be last and the last first, that's going to come up again a couple of times in the next several chapters. And, and so that's where that's going to kind of play itself out. But Jesus says in verse 28, truly I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You know, that's a really hard and confusing text. Um, and there's a lot of uh, conversation about what specifically verse 28 uh, might mean. And I don't know exactly. I think Jesus is referencing more to the near future than he is to the distant future. And here's, here's why. Where's Jesus? Right now. I'm pretty sure he's sitting on his throne. Like, I'm pretty sure he's ruling and reigning as king. Uh, I, think, I think Jesus is referencing more to a specific event that would come here when Israel would wind up being judged. And we'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks. But the, the, the point is this, in verse 29, right? Jesus wants us to see that our better inheritance is in himself. That everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And and again, in this this instance, Jesus isn't, he's not calling for abandonment. He's not calling for abandonment. He's again, just calling us to analyze, assess our hearts. And to know that like we, we live in a world in which there are, there are those who would want us to who would want to pull us away from himself. Right? And and his his call to us as his disciples is a call to endurance, and that, that is cultivated by continually capturing and delighting in the goodness of God. Right? This, is, this is the whole point of what Jesus wants this rich young ruler to see. Right? He's, he's reshaping his concept of what, what constitutes eternal life and what is truly satisfying. And what he wants us to see is truly satisfying is just this continuous delight and satisfaction in the glory and the goodness of God. And and that's something that we have to actually work to cultivate. Because there are a billion other things that are demanding our attention on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. There are billion other things that are trying to shape you into someone other than who God wants you to be. And so what does that look like? Well, it looks like learning how to surrender to the reality of who we are in Christ. It's it's a constant, I think it's a repeated, it's it's just constantly repeating to yourself this reality that you you are a beloved son and daughter. 
Like it's embracing this identity that you no longer have to ask the question of what you must do, but who you are. And it's okay for you to continually repeat this reality to yourself that you are beloved. Right? Um, it, in other words, it's not about becoming holy, it's embracing the fact that you are holy. Right? Like, I, I, maybe just ask yourself that question. How many of you would consider yourselves to be holy? Right? If you have good theology, you will. <laughs> right? right? Because holy is not about becoming something. Holiness is about embracing this reality of who God has made you in Christ. That's what 1 Peter tells us. You are, we are a holy nation. We are holy people, right? And so it's being a disciple is just living into this reality, and it's living out of this reality of who God says you are. You don't need to keep performing. You need to stop performing. Um, Some some psalms that I had thought of in this just as like a practice for us would be like praying, just, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34. Uh, And just making that like the prayer of our hearts. I think also praying Psalm 16, right? Uh, In your presence, that's Psalm 16? Yeah. In your presence, there's fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. These prayers have been given to us to cultivate new realities in our hearts, right? That we would on a a daily moment-by-moment basis see that which is unsatisfying, the idols rooted out. And that there would be just a sweet delight in the person and work of Jesus because his inheritance is better. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you, you just make so clear to us that you are, you're better, that your inheritance is better, that your presence is better, that, that to have true treasure in heaven is, is this invitation to come and follow you. So we just thank you for that reality this morning. I pray that, that you would help us on a regular basis, on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis to, to see the idols that are in our hearts rooted out, whatever they may be. Lord, may we take that which we find to be more satisfying and delightful and just surrender it to you. Thank you, thank you God, that you are good and you have, you have shown that goodness. You've shown that you are steadfast and that you are faithful, ultimately by giving us your son, Jesus. And so may we continue to fix our eyes upon him now and, and just and worship you because of who you are and what you've done. It's in your good name that we pray. Amen.